Welcome to everyone that's new. Uh, every week we've got new people coming into the room. If you've come in for the first time, it's not usually like this. Okay, this is a little bit more extra carnage going on. It is our fourth birthday celebration, so um, we don't usually have games and party hats and Barbara Ann smashing cake all over the ground. Well, welcome to part four of our series, The Little Big Life. Um, I've really enjoyed the series, both the messages that God has led me to prepare, but also the teaching that I've got to sit under. I think it's been absolutely excellent. I hope by now that each of us carry a level of faith to know that God has called you to live a big life. But as I covered in the first part a couple of weeks ago, it's often the big things that depend on getting the little things right. I worded it like this. I said, big doors swing on small hinges. Seemingly small things that if managed well, cultivated, valued, and prioritized in our life would result in you and I being more effective, fruitful, and satisfied in what God has called us to do. Part one was being a person of the word. We looked at King David from when he was a boy. Remember that he meditated and he memorized the promises of God, and that gave him courage in the face of his giants. And he also had a personal pursuit after God. He's the only one described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He didn't read the Bible to be impressive. He didn't read the Bible out of obligation or what they would have had in terms of oral traditions of the scriptures and the God stories. But he did it because he was grounded on God's word. He sought God's face because he genuinely wanted to know him. And then in part two, it was all about being devoted to prayer. Darcy brilliantly unpacked uh, the Lord's Prayer and showed us a framework that Jesus had outlined not on what to pray, but rather on how to pray. The outline covered praise, provision, pardon, and protection. See, prayer moves the hand of God but they don't need to be these super big spiritual religious sounding declarations, but small authentic moments where we speak to God and we listen. That was a really important part. This is the foundation of anyone that wants to live a big life. And in part three last week, if you were here, you remember it was on community. Beck said, you need someone and someone needs you. She did a phenomenal job of dissecting the story of the man that was lowered through the roof right in front of Jesus to receive his miracle, something he would have never received if it wasn't for his community. We need each other to live the life that God has called us to live. We need each other to see what we don't see, to remind us that there's always another way, and because sometimes we need to borrow a little faith. See, community is part of God's design for us. In fact, when you have good community around you, studies show, this is what Beck unpacked last week, that you're not only healthier, but you live longer. My favorite part, it's better to eat pies and cakes with friends than broccoli alone. Amen. Like it's crazy that the benefits of community outweigh the benefits of a good diet, but you should do both. Like you don't get to ignore one in the name of the other. And so here we are at part four, our final part of the series. And today I want to speak to you on the idea of stewardship. We have to be a person of the word. We have to be devoted to prayer, connected into community and good stewards of what God has entrusted into our hands. Now, the story goes that the frugal Lutheran walked into the house panting, almost completely exhausted. What happened, honey? Asked his wife. I had a great new idea to help us be better stewards of our resources, he gasped. I ran all the way home from the stewardship committee meeting behind the bus and I saved $1.50. Well, that wasn't very bright, said the wife. Why didn't you run behind a taxi and save $10? That's dumb. (laughs) Often the very first thing we think of when we hear the word stewardship is money. And that's hugely problematic because while it's a really important part of stewardship, it's only a part of what should be considered. In Genesis 15 verse 2, the Hebrew word for steward is albaeth, which literally means man over the house. And the Greek word, so Hebrew was the Old Testament, the Greek word, which is New Testament, was oikonomos, that's fun, oikonomos, which means the manager of a household. This is also the word that derives itself into the word economy, right? So 
It's a term that refers to the way in which we manage and take care of whatever it is that's been placed in our hands. And we get introduced to this idea of stewardship really early on in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Right, right in the very first chapter from verse 26. says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. Govern and reign. Be fruitful and multiply. Govern and reign. To take hold of something that isn't yours, but to treat it as though it was. To be vigilant, mindful, effective, fruitful, considered, and faithful. See, when God gave these instructions to Adam and Eve, He wasn't gifting them ownership of the earth and the animals, but rather He was delegating responsibility to them to care for and manage them well. How we care for somebody else's property says a lot about us. How we are mindful of something that's been entrusted into our hands says a lot about us. Now, the reason that stewardship is so vital to living a big life is because it's a really strong indicator on what you can be trusted with. And the more that God can trust us with, the bigger our lives become. Luke chapter 12, in the second part of verse 48, it says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. If stewardship is about being good managers over something that ultimately doesn't belong to us, then it becomes a matter of honor, right? When we take good care of what has been entrusted to us temporarily, we honor the one who has trusted us. It also then becomes a matter of competence. If we can't manage something on behalf of someone else, what makes us think that God would put something into our own hands for ownership that might eventually end up crushing us? See, our approach to stewardship can be used as a training ground to prepare us for heavier weights and responsibilities. And the go-to passage that a lot of preachers go to, I've done it, I'll do it again because it's a beautiful picture, is the story, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Three servants entrusted with three different amounts. I often find myself here in sermons, so I won't go into it too much this morning. But they're asked to manage their amounts on behalf of their master, and they complete this to varying levels of success. It's the ones that manage the resources well that were declared good and faithful servants, and those ones were entrusted with more. But as you know, it's the one that didn't manage the little that they had, ended up having that little taken from them. He proved himself to be someone that couldn't be trusted. And if we're truly going to understand biblical stewardship, the foundation of our understanding has to recognize God is creator, distributor, and giver of all things. In John 1.1, and I think it also finds itself a little bit in Colossians, we read that in reference to Jesus, everything was created through him and for him. Through Jesus. Everything was created through God and for God. You know, as long as we think that everything we have is ours, we'll neglect the responsibility to do right by the one that has given it. This mentality can sneak in really fast. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. We think, but I worked really hard to build my business from scratch. I went to university and I worked hard and I got a degree and that resulted in a nice high paying job. But I came up with a brilliant idea that launched me into success. But I'm the one that put myself out there and stagged myself a really nice spouse. But I did this, but I did that, but I'm the one that should receive the credit. And I'm not arguing that you didn't do that. It's just that the Bible says the only reason you could do that in the first place was because of him. Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 to 18 says, You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. 
but remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors and it is to, as it is today. This is a really good place to start. Because starting with the knowledge that actually everything is God's to start with changes our perspective on stewardship. There's a bunch of different areas that God calls us to be good managers over. We don't have all the time in the world this morning, um, but fundamental to living a big life, this morning I want to cover two main ones, and that's to be good stewards of people and resources. Be good stewards of people and resources. And the first one is this, you can write it in your notes, it'll come up on the screen. God calls us to manage our family. Manage your family. Families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. If it's like my family, mostly nuts, sometimes sweet. <laughs> There's an amazing story. <laughs> I was like, I mean my, like, the family I grew up in. That's what I mean. <laughs> Not my other little family. They're all sweet. <laughs> There's an amazing story in the Bible where Moses is trying to lead people, and he's, all these people are coming with problems. You may be familiar with it. And hundreds of people are coming to Moses with all his problems, and he's getting really burnt out. He's trying to take it all on himself. He thinks he is the answer to everyone's problem. And then uh, his father-in-law, Jethro, comes along. He's like, you're nuts. You're going to burn out. It's not going to be good for you, and it's not going to be good for people. And so they delegate different leaders, some over 10, some over 50, some over 100, because different leaders have different capacities and capabilities. And so they come up with a strategy in order to manage and care for people better. This, as a beautiful picture, shows us God's heart towards managing people. People are not a number. People are not a resource. People are real life people made in the image of God. And it's really important that we take that responsibility seriously, especially when it comes to our family. You know, in our efforts to be ambitious in our career, connected to friends, maybe making a difference in the lives of our community, we can so often do that with the first casualties being our very own family. Isn't it true that we can very quickly take for granted that which is right under our nose? You know, when I'm watching the news and I hear terrible stories of young children being seriously injured or going missing or sometimes sadly passing away, it upsets me. I know it upsets you too. It breaks my heart and I can't imagine what it would be like. And then I imagine what it would be like. I think about what it would be like if that happened to me, if that happened to my family, if that happened to Boston. And I tell you right now, I very quickly back out of that, that thought pattern. I very quickly back out of thinking that way because it's absolutely horrifying. It's unthinkable. It hits way closer to home when it's your own family. And I think God actually designed it that way. I actually think that's really helpful. I think having very close-knit families is part of God's community architecture to ensure that everyone, at least in theory, I know families are complex and they don't always operate in God's design, but at least in theory, everyone has a family that is close to them, that loves them, that supports them, and would literally die for them. See, each of us are called to look beyond ourselves to the needs of others, but we've completely missed the point if we overlook our own household in the process. Now, our family is our first ministry. I may be a pastor, but my family uh, is more important than all of you <laughs> to me. And, and, and the same should be said of you, right? Our family is our first ministry. First Timothy 5 verse 8 says, But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their household, have denied the true faith. That's heavy. Such people are worse than unbelievers. 
I think when Timothy says that such people are worse than unbelievers, I think he's referring to their state of lostness. I think he's referring to their state of disconnectedness from the will of God. He's kind of like saying, you're really lost. You think like unbelievers are lost and disconnected from God in faith. You're really lost if you neglect those in your household. Like unbelievers don't even know faith yet. They don't even know God yet. But if you're someone that calls upon the name of Jesus and you're a person that has faith, you're really disconnected if you're overlooking your own household. You know, I love what our founding pastor, Luke Bro, said one time he was having a conversation. I was listening in. It was in a public place, so I wasn't eavesdropping, I promise. But he was explaining that many years ago, this was quite a while ago, maybe eight, ten years ago, he was saying prior to that, that he used to have a couple of male staff members that would stay really late in the office to work on ministry things. Now, that definitely happens from time to time. That happens in any workplace. That happens with us. On occasion, you know, there's a bit of hustle. Let's go. But Pastor Luke noticed that this was becoming a really common occurrence for a few of these staff members, and it was a red flag for him. It had him ask, why do they want to be here and not at home with their families? Why are these guys not at home with their families helping with the kids? And he would ask them to leave go home, get out of here. And the response is often, oh, but there's so much work to do. He was like, there is always so much work to do. Don't die on the altar of ministry. Now, I know that you are not all employed by the church, right? Like you're not meant to be. You're meant to be out in the workforce, doing your thing, being great witnesses out there. But the same could be said for you and I and, and you with your jobs. Never forget that to not care first and foremost for those in our household, Timothy says that this would mean you're denying the true faith. To have faith in God literally looks like prioritizing your family. Here's a few quick keys to manage our family well. Firstly, make time for one another. Busy lives mean that if you wait for free time, you'll never find it. You know that. You obviously have other responsibilities. You have your jobs. You serve at church. You might have other hobbies or sports. That's cool. That stuff's actually really good. But be intentional to make time to play with your kids, to spend time with your spouse, to do things that communicate that your family is really important to you. One of the things that Darcy and I have in place is on Friday mornings, we have this toddler sensory class that we go to. Uh, it's as cool as it sounds. So we go to this thing, and there's a different theme, and there's like 20 toddlers and their parents smashing sticks and rattles, and singing silly little songs. Friday's my day off. Friday's Darcy's day off. There are other things that seem more restful to me than in a room of, say hello, click, click, say hello. I'm like, <laughs> but I also love being there. It's something we've just said, every Friday we all go. At least one of us are sick or something like that. That's where Darcy is today, by the way. She's been quite sick, so please keep her in your prayer. But um. It's something we've dedicated. This is, this is family time. Sure, we're there hanging out with all these other kids, but Boston knows every Friday, I don't know if he knows the days of the week, but we turn up to the toddler sensory class. Mum and dad come. We hang out together. We prioritize it. It's family time that we have together. Secondly, set standards around godliness and devotion. This, first and foremost, is the man's job. Men, you have been set apart by God to be the spiritual leader of your house. Now, I know that some households look very different. And in a lot of households, mum is also dead. And you can absolutely still do this. What it comes down to is making a declaration, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And actually setting some standards in your house. One of those is saying things like, on Sunday, we go to church. You know, I've really loved and been enriched by my conversations with uh, Rona and Darren Trollope. You might remember Darren from previous episodes of smashing cake and blowing balloons up. 
on the stage. These guys are amazing, and their team leaders um, have been since we launched the church. They've got two amazing young adult children, and the conversations I've had with them, like, how do you do it? And like, sometimes we can do all the right things, and our kids still do what our kids do, but their kids are phenomenal. And they said, one of the things we just said is on Sundays we go to church. Sometimes we have big weeks. They run businesses. They work full-time jobs. They do a whole lot of stuff, but they're just like, that's what we do as a family, and they've set that culture and that standard, which I think has been amazing. Also, like, there should be an element of personal pursuit of God, not just family time reading the Bible together or reading Bible stories to the kids. For the really young kids, that's probably sufficient. But as your kids get older, remember that we have been commissioned to train our children in the way they should go so that when they get older, they would not depart from it. You know, as much as you feel like your family belongs to you and your children belong to you, they actually don't. God has placed them in our hands and said, would you lead them? Would you nurture them? Would you train them? Would you build them up to be all that I created them to be? Would you disciple them in the most important small group that you'll ever be a part of. See, you get to opt in and out of our church small groups on a termly basis. You don't get to opt out of your family. And so it's worth putting in the effort and being intentional to make sure it is the most fruitful and God-honoring small group that you would ever be a part of. And the third thing within this is that it's important to engage in difficult conversations in an age-appropriate way. I'm ballparking the age here, but I would say from about intermediates and older, they really need to know how to navigate cultural challenges through the lens of faith in alignment with the word. Sexuality, social friendship challenges, connecting with people that are different from us, managing our emotions in the face of adversity, and how to live to biblical principles even when it's really hard. Um, many of you won't be aware of this, but I, I want to make you aware of it. There's an amazing... Um, resource outlet that we have a subscription to as a church. And I know for a lot of parents, it can be really daunting engaging in those conversations. And this is not the full um, presentation of resources that you need, but there's a thing called Right Now Media. It's amazing. And there's a whole bunch of different study materials and, and cartoons and movies for the kids and good teaching materials and video series. It's a paid subscription. We pay for it across all of our campuses so that every single member in our church can have access to it. Now, a lot of our small group leaders, they, they log into that and they get cool resources that they can share with you in small group, but that's actually available to everyone. It's paid for. Um, I just want to start, probably apologize that we haven't probably mentioned that as much as we should have. If you want access to that, you can set up a free account and you can access all of that. You're asking how? Um, I don't really know. Andrew Dakin knows how, but I know that. Um, how about this? Yeah, right on the Connect card, just write um, Right Now Media or that resource thing, if you forget the name, and just give us your name and email address and put it in the connect box at the back and we'll manage to send you an email and let you know how you can sign up to that. Because I can stand here all day long and say, have difficult conversations with your kids. And you're like, I don't know how to have that conversation with myself, right? So we need to get resource. We need to take action to have those difficult conversations. And that helps to set standards for godliness in our home. You know, I devoted my life to teenagers in ministry for over 10 years. They say they don't care what you think and they act like they know better. Hey, hey, you think you're so smart. I thought that too. <laughs> um, but parents, they're desperate to know that you care, and they actually do listen to your guidance. They just don't want you to know that. Hey, like, it's good. It's good. They're independent. Like, they're growing. They're learning to do things on their own, but they really do care what you say, and they do appreciate your guidance. If you can't be faithful at home, it doesn't matter how faithful you are outside of it. If you can't manage well at home, managing well at work is just a facade that we sometimes hide behind. Your job will come and go. 
your sports involvement will come and go, your reputation, success, and accolades, they will come and go. And no, at some point, no one will care that you were once the CEO or the something or other of some company, but your kids will always be your kids. Your family will always be your family. I'm speaking specifically about those in your household. Nobody ever says, ah, oh, I regret the amount of time I spent with my children. No one says that. Spiritual, spiritual stewardship of our family is not about growing numerically. It's about helping each other grow in spiritual maturity. Your family might not include kids, and that's okay. Maybe it just includes your spouse. Maybe it's just you to start with. All of this is still true. Living a big life means being good stewards over our families, being trustworthy with them to help them grow. It's these little things that lead to big lives. Is that okay? And the second thing and, and the final thing this morning is to manage your resources. There's a little boy in church for the first time, and he watches as the offering plates get passed around. And when they came near his pew, the boy loudly called out, Daddy, don't pay for me. I'm under five. <laughs> Managing our resources. Now, this is a really, really big one. And for the sake of time, I'm going to be brief. But the Bible talks about this a lot. And I think the Bible talks about this a lot because God understands how broken and little life can become if we don't manage our resources well. Jesus said that you can't serve both God and money. You will love one and despise the other. So getting this wrong can have a massive impact on the course of your life and potentially on your eternity if it's something that draws you away from God. You know, one of the first things we learned from that parable of the talents is that good stewardship looks like multiplication. It looks like growth. It requires wisdom, strategies, and accountability. It needs a plan. The key resource to help us navigate life, right, is money. That's an obvious one. But let's go right back to the start. Important that we do this. All that we have is His. All that you have been able to earn was made possible because of Him. And we've been asked to be faithful managers over something that is ultimately not ours. Now, because we don't have much time, I want to jump straight to talk about tithing this morning because we don't talk about it much here at Elam at all. You may have noticed that if you've been here for a little while, if it's your first time. We don't usually talk about this a lot. We're, we're usually very gentle on that, and there's a reason for that. But I often get questions about it. Um, sometimes the questions are in passing. Sometimes they're in growth track. And the questions suggest to me that assuming people understand this would be a wrong assumption. It's really important that as a church we teach you on biblical concepts. I want to take a few minutes to help each of us understand this, uh, maybe for the first time. And for those that feel well-versed in it, maybe it's a good reminder of how the seemingly small practice can result in a big life for you. So could we start in the Word, right? Because I don't ever want to teach something as, as if it's abundantly clear in the Word if it's not. If I can't build a foundation in the Word, then there's no foundation that I have. So let's go to a couple of passages in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 to 2, Paul says, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there to try and collect it all at once. It was common practice at that time to collect in a tithe. And Paul even alludes to it being pre-planned and organized rather than spontaneous and random. The church was encouraged to be prepared in their giving. He says, prepare it in advance so when I come, you're ready to go. We also read that as the early church began to gather in the book of Acts, they were said to sell their items, gather the money, give to those in need, share meals, look after one another. Generosity was embedded in the establishment of the church. This is what the church originally started to become known for. It was part of who they were. There's also this other occasion where Jesus is in the temple and he calls his disciples over and highlights a woman who's giving just two coins in the temple. But the crazy thing about this 
is that these were the only two coins that she had. He says that this woman, even though the value that she was giving was much smaller, was giving far more than the rich people in the room. Giving was a normal New Testament practice in the temple. It was necessary in a practical sense, but this was profoundly spiritual as well. Can you imagine being that woman? Bible describes her as a widow. She's already cast out from society. This is a moment of deep trust and surrender to God. It's a moment where she's trying to be obedient to his word and she's not sure how it's all going to work out. So yeah, there's a practical reason, but this was deeply spiritual and a state of surrender as well. And the Bible makes sure to highlight Jesus' celebration of this. He essentially points her out, brings his disciples in and says, that may be little, but that's how you live a big life. And then in Proverbs 11 verse 24, it says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. There is a pretty obvious practical reason as to why we give generously, both you know, financially, both in church and towards those in need. But this, is, this practice is part of the foundation to living a big life. Now, the Bible talks about bringing a regular tithe, which historically speaking in Scripture was 10%. I'm not here to tell you how much to give. There are a lot of scholars that look at that number and they argue that, oh, that number is meant to still be something that would be expected today. And other scholars say, no, there's no way that that number still applies. It's a different thing. There's debate about that. And so that's okay. I also read in the Bible, it says we should give what we've already determined in our heart to give. And so I think it does come down to a matter of personal conviction. I think we have to find a level of of peace in that. Um, so the portion might be discussed, but this act of regularly giving is crystal clear. Giving something regularly is an amazing decision of surrender. Adrian Rogers, who was um, quite an influential, significant pastor in the U.S., uh, in the Baptist church, he said, God doesn't need us to give him our money. He owns everything. Tithing is God's way to grow Christians. And C.S. Lewis says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If I could share a little bit about my story, beginning to give was the biggest significant breakthrough moment in my spiritual journey. I don't actually know if I could think of another moment or time or step that was more helpful in me stepping forward in my trust of God. Because it stepped me forward from being someone that sat in church and I heard the sermons and I loved what was going on. I loved the facilities and the community stuff. I loved it all, but beginning to give myself transitioned me from someone that heard the word into someone that was living it out. I was so nervous when I started. I remember thinking, like, I know some of these people, but like, can the leadership be trusted? Is this good soil to invest in? Like, I'm, I remember thinking, because I was just a student at the time, I was like, I'm going to struggle financially after this. Like, I'm really going to notice it. So I thought, I'll just trial it. I'll set up a trial. So I set up this like automatic payment, and I thought, well, if it's, if it's hard, like I think it's going to be hard, I'll just stop and say I gave it an honest crack. You know, I really wanted to start giving. I knew God had said it to me. I knew that's what the Word said. I just had no idea how it was going to work out. Well, I noticed nothing. I really thought I would struggle, and I noticed nothing. In fact, God's Word was so true that my world began to get bigger and bigger, and I was more able to clearly see the provision of God in my life. Malachi 3.10 says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. I heard that and I put God to the test. You know, over the last five years, um, I've become significantly more financially literate, which has allowed Darcy and I to be fruitful in the little that we have. We've been able to multiply our resource, not because we won lotto or we got some insider knowledge on the next new investment trend, 
but because we devoted ourselves to learning, but we also chose to never, ever waver on biblical principles. When we applied for a mortgage, we fell slightly short on the serviceability, on the affordability. And I remember the banker saying, well, I can see this expense there. If you just stop tithing, you'll have enough and we can give you the mortgage. I said, no, I can't. It's just, it's just not what I can do. We got the mortgage. We decided we would rather honor what God had asked us to do and allow him to pave a way. And that's exactly what happened. I'm not saying that's how it works out for everyone, but it's important. And our story is that we've just chosen to honor God's principles the whole way through. God's instructions are like honey to the soul. They're dripping with heavenly wisdom. And when we live by them, we get to eat of the fruit. Don't mistake this though for thinking, if you do this, you'll get wealthy. That's not how it works. I think you'll certainly be rich. Look, you might get wealthy. And I hope that you do, I guess, as long as you don't forget the Lord your God. As long as you don't forget the one that provides and gives and distributes everything. You know, and a lot of people at this point are in a talk like this, they, and maybe you've heard their testimony, they like to say things like this. They like to say, when I started giving, I found that I didn't go without. That was my story. Or in fact, my world got bigger and I got even more. And what amazing as that is, I've got to be honest with you, I don't care if I'm out of pocket. I don't care if I have to live my life a little bit differently. I want my life to stand for something bigger than me. I want my, like I experience Christ. I want other people to experience Christ and beautiful biblical community because it absolutely transformed my life. I don't give because there is a promise that I might get it back tenfold. I don't give because I know that God's faithful on his promises and I'm gonna end up getting it back and I can get a tax rebate on my return. I give because my love for those around me compels me to. Because to think that I wouldn't experience what I've experienced or we couldn't have what we have if it wasn't for those that came before us, man, I just can't wait to invest into future generations. I realize that tithing in church can be contentious. But so can loving your enemy, forgiving those who have hurt you, speaking in tongues, trusting God for wild miracles, believing in heaven and hell. None of these things need to be contentious. Surrendering to God and contributing to the building of his house will disarm the grip that you have on paving your own future. And it will invite God in to truly be the Lord of your life. J.L. Kraft, who was the head of the Kraft Cheese Corporation, massive company in the States, uh, who had given approximately 25% of his enormous income to Christian causes for many years, said the only investment I ever made, which has paid consistently increasing dividends, is the money I gave to the Lord. And J.D. Rockefeller said, I never would have been able to tithe on the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed on my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. Stewardship includes that concept of return. We are managing something that isn't ours. And when the master tells us that we get to keep the majority of it, but just return a small amount, thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for your provision. Stewardship is an attitude that thinks generationally. It's not just about us and what we have now, but it's what our children and our grandchildren and their children will have access to. But the point of stewarding well and investing into future generations is not so that they could live in a higher state of luxury than we do, but so that they could be more effective in caring for their families, their church, and the needs of others, so that they could advance the cause of Christ wider and deeper than we ever could. What we have now is because of those that came before us, and the seeds we sow today will enable those to come ahead of us to flourish. Ben, you can join me. Whether it be caring and managing your family really well or using our resources to honor God, to care for others, God's word is clear that to be a good steward is one of the key elements of living a surrendered and impactful life. Remember right at the start, be fruitful and multiply, 
govern and reign. Be fruitful and multiply, govern and reign. These were the very first instructions ever given to mankind in the book of Genesis. Essentially, God's saying, do well with what you've got, multiply it so you can be fruitful and be good managers over what I've placed in your hands. This is the little big life, living a big life because we got the little things right.